0: Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Uh, Acts chapter 21 will be our text this Lord's Day as we look at verses 1 through 14. And as you turn there, I want to bring you uh, greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Gdansk, Poland. uh, There at Second Baptist Gdansk where I was able to preach last Lord's Day. And and to thank you as a church for sending me and Ken Walker on that trip. We had a, a very fruitful time there. We were able to meet with the leaders of the church and talk about... The work that God has done over the last decade and to make plans for uh, the coming decade and the opportunities we have to continue to minister in that city. Uh, we were reminded while we were there of the great need. Uh, Gdansk sits in a tri-city area on the northern part of Poland in an area where there's about a, a million and a half people. Uh, they are one of only a, a few, a handful of evangelical churches there. Uh, only two Baptist churches there. And there's great lostness in that area. And so we were able to spend time with leaders uh, who are now leading the ministry there, uh, who were reached through the ministries that we offer in the summer several years ago. And then over the years have been discipled and now are leading there in the church. And so it was a very encouraging time. We were able to have a small discipleship conference there for some of the leaders in their church and, and preach and then return. And, and it, was a, it was a very busy trip, but it was a blessing. Uh, last Lord's Day I was thinking about the opportunity I had to preach there. Um, it was a challenge because I was preaching through an interpreter. And so if you've ever spoken through an interpreter, uh, you know that you have to really think through what you're going to say. And, and in my case, in preaching, I had to think through very uh, short and, and pointed statements uh, that then would be interpreted so I could continue in the flow of the sermon. And as a result, I, I cut a lot of things out and preached pretty short. And the interpreter there said, you know, your people... Back in Bloomfield, would probably appreciate this. So maybe I'll preach through an interpreter uh, sometime here, because uh, I said, no, in Bloomfield, I can just keep talking and talking and talk. You know, don't so have to wait on an interpreter. And people love to hear me talk and talk and talk as you nod your heads and say amen. So uh, it was a fruitful time, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, April of this coming year. We'll be bringing uh, Pastor Adrian. Uh, And his wife, Asha, here, uh, who are a part of the church there, they'll be able to come here. He'll be with us. He'll be preaching One Lord's Day. And uh, there's a pastor's conference in Louisville that we brought him in for two years ago. He'll be coming back in for that. So uh, we're excited about the opportunities we have in the future. Uh, some of you have been to Poland. Some of you might be considering going to Poland or even considering one of our other partnerships. Uh, we're also planning a trip next year for East Asia. We'll either be going to Malaysia or to Taiwan. If you were here uh, when Jeff and Melva spoke about Taiwan, you've heard about some of the needs there. And so next Sunday, uh, November 15th, next Sunday evening at 6, we're going to have an interest meeting. If you are interested in going internationally with us next year, uh, that would be a, a good starting point to come to hear more about the partnerships, more about the process, and more about the requirements for folks who'd like to go on those trips. So not, this, uh, not tonight, but next Lord's Day uh, at 6 p.m. we'll have that mission interest meeting. And we hope that you'll be there uh, if you're considering going on one of our partnerships. Uh, but today we are in Acts chapter 21, returning to our study of Acts. Uh, we are now, as you know, in Paul's third missionary journey. And at this point, uh, he is pressing on towards Jerusalem. He knows the Lord has called him to go to Jerusalem, and yet he also knows that there is great suffering and affliction that awaits him there. And what we're going to read about today is two different encounters Paul has with other Christians who the Spirit has told that Paul would suffer. They have the right information, and yet they come to the wrong conclusion. And they take this information and then go to Paul and say, well, if you're going to suffer... The Spirit must not want you to go, and they try to encourage Him not to go. And so in looking at this, we're going to talk more about how should we give people counsel, uh, how might we counsel people through the Word of God. And we're also going to address a problem I think we often have in the church today, and that's when we give ungodly and unbiblical counsel to people, which happens very often. And so if you are processing today a decision of any sort a uh, counsel from others, counsel you're giving to others. And we all go through those from time to time. I hope that you'll learn a bit from our text today. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, and out of reverence for the Word of God, if you're able, if you would stand as I read this text for us. It is holy, and it is inspired, and it is God's Word to us today. And this is what it says. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos. And the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. And from there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Telamai, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, you would pray with me. Father, I pray and ask that that would be our prayer, our desire today, that your will might be done. I pray that knowing, Lord, that so often it is another will that is done. It is our will. It is our desires. It is so much ungodly counsel that comes to us. And so, Lord, I pray that your will would be clear today and that we would respond to it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, You can probably see there in your notes, I've, I've put a heading on this outline today, how to use poor discernment and offer bad advice. Uh, that's a bit in jest. I don't think any of us need any more lessons on how to use poor discernment and offer bad advice because I think oftentimes uh, that's what exactly what we feel, find ourselves doing. Uh, but I want to talk about this because I think unless we really consider what God's Word says, our default is to give advice based on how we feel, Uh, based on what our our gut tells us, and oftentimes that is the opposite of what it is God's Word is telling us. And so I want us to think today about how it is we give advice, how it is we receive advice, understanding that in order to give the right advice, it's important to have the right information. You see, it's possible that we give bad advice or poor advice at times because we don't have the right information. Uh, So you can think, for example, of, medical practices of today compared to medical practices of two or three hundred years ago. Two or three hundred years ago, you might have gone to the town doctor complaining of an ailment and they might have reached into their desk there and pulled out a jar of leeches. Said, okay, well, what you need to do is bleed. (laughs) And if we can just get all that bad blood out of you, then you'll get better. And so they give you those leeches and you go home and slap those leeches on and supposedly that make you all better. In fact, Uh, This was such a common practice, not just the leeches, but the process of bloodletting that they would actually encourage people uh, to be cut and to drain blood out of their body. Now you and I know better today, we have better information, but with poor information we give poor advice. And so in fact, the first president of our country, George Washington, they attribute his death in part to this practice because while he was ill, they said that he lost about 40% of the blood in his body. Because he was given that advice, advice based on poor information. These practices weren't just medieval. There's some practices like this today in less informed parts of the world. And so there are cultures you can travel to today in 2015 that will tell you, well, if you're having a stomach ache, what you need to do is swallow a small frog. And if you swallow that small frog, then that's going to take care of your stomach's problems. Now I'm no medical professional, but I would say that swallowing a small frog would probably increase your stomach problems. In fact, I would be interested to know how one swallows a small frog. I was so interested in knowing this, I actually Googled it and found out that they encourage you to uh, lather up that small frog in butter or lard in order to swallow it better. Doesn't that make your stomach feel better already, just thinking about that? Why would someone put butter on a frog and swallow it to make their stomach feel better? Because that's the advice they were given by someone who thought that's what was best for them. We can give bad advice when we have bad information. But we can also give bad advice when we have the right information. Sometimes we have the right information in front of us, and yet we still give the wrong advice. God has given to His church His Word. And it is exactly what we need. It is 100% authoritative and true And it applies to all areas of our life and matters. We have the right information. And yet so often in the church today, we give the wrong advice. And that's what we see happening, I believe, in Acts chapter 21 today. You have two different encounters that Paul has, both with Christians. Both who receive the right information. At First, the disciples there at Tyre, they had received the right information through the Holy Spirit that Paul was going to suffer in Jerusalem, but they made the wrong conclusion. They knew the right information, but they concluded then that Paul should not go to Jerusalem, and they were wrong. Then you have this situation with this prophet Agabus, We've seen Agabus before. He was earlier in Acts, the one who gave the prophecy that there would be a great famine, and therefore the church was taking up and offering a collection to prepare for this famine that was coming. Well, now Agabus comes and says, listen, let me show you, Paul, what's going to happen to you. And again, he tells him the truth. He has the right information. And yet Luke and others come to the wrong conclusion. They hear that Paul's going to suffer, and then they conclude that Paul should not go. And yet we know from the Scripture that it was the will of the Lord to go. And so what I want us to consider today is how is it that when we have the right information in front of us, we still give the wrong advice? And how can we become a people of God who are better at counseling and better at giving guidance to those who are seeking to understand God's will for their life? To so order to understand that, we need to first understand where we're going wrong, And so that's what we'll address as we look through this passage today. Beginning with the first point. We go wrong so often because point one, we often trust in our gut more than God's word. We trust in our gut more than God's word. Perhaps more than any other phrase, the one you often hear when you seek advice for someone is to go with your gut. Well, what is your gut instinct? What is your gut feeling? And what is someone telling us? They're saying, basically, whatever your instinct is, that's what you need to do. Whatever your gut is telling you or your heart is telling you, that's what you need to do. But often what we find is that what our gut is telling us and what our heart is telling us is exactly what we should not do. Now, to understand how this applies in this passage, we need to understand the context. We've already seen here, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. Paul knows that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. God has said very clearly to Paul from the beginning of his ministry, he was going to suffer. So you go back to Acts chapter 9, and you read about Paul's conversion, and the Lord says this of Paul, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Paul, if you'll recall as we go through Acts, everywhere he goes, he seems to suffer. And so later on in 2 Corinthians 11, he he starts to give an account of all these things. And so he starts talking about, I I was beaten with 39 lashes. I was stoned, left for dead. I, I was beaten. I was imprisoned. I was shipwrecked. Paul knew what it was to suffer. And he knew what it was to face affliction. And yet he knew that the Lord was calling him to this very thing. In Acts chapter 20, just before this passage today, we read, He said this, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. And so Paul was saying very clearly, God has ordained suffering in my life. The Holy Spirit has called me to go to Jerusalem, and I know if I go there, I'm going to suffer. And so as he has communicated these things, and as the Spirit has spoken to these disciples at Tyre. They have the right information, but notice what their response is. They say, Paul, don't go. Now, think about this for a moment. This is understandable. How many of you remember the, the game show, Let's Make a Deal? Remember Let's Make a Deal? All right. How I many of y'all are awake right now? Show of hands. All right, a few more. All right, Let's Make a Deal. You, you basically had this presentation where there, there was usually a known and an unknown. So, uh, you know, the known was, uh, you've got here, you know, a year's supply of groceries, but, you know, you might want to trade that year's supply of groceries for what's behind door number two. And if you were watching the show much, you knew that what was behind door number two might have been a goat or might have been a Cadillac. You didn't know what it was going to be. And so the person had to decide, are they willing to roll the dice on the groceries to get the goat or the Cadillac or do they just want to stay with safe bet? when it comes to things like what we're seeing in today's text there's no known and unknown there's a known and a known and so if you were in that scenario and these were your options what would you choose option number 1 a life of ease option number 2 you're going to be shipwrecked bitten by snakes beaten with rods left for bit for dead which do you choose number 1 Thank you. We've got one person who would choose number one. The rest of you want to be shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, beaten to death. There's a line for that in the back after church. Yes, you would choose the life of ease. Who would choose suffering? Who wakes up in the morning and says, Lord, I really hope my car blows up today. And I really hope on the way to work, the road actually drops out from under me and I get swallowed by a manhole. Who comes up with this stuff? No, we, we desire a life of ease. We, we all know that there's no perfectly easy life. But, but none of us seeks out suffering. And so it's very understandable that when the Holy Spirit reveals to Paul's companions, these other disciples, that he's going to suffer, it's understandable that they would say, well, Paul, don't go. <laughs> because our gut instinct is what? Door number one. Ease. Ease. Don't suffer. But there's another component here that we need to consider. And that other component is this. God has made His will very clear to Paul. And God has told Paul, you need to go to Jerusalem. And God has said, if you go, you're going to suffer. And these disciples, rather than considering what God had said and what His word to Paul was, they're just going with their gut, And in doing so, they actually encouraged Paul to, to do the exact opposite of what God's calling him to do. And here's the point. If you and I in the church today don't learn to put a greater priority on the Word of God than we do on our gut response, then we too may find ourselves encouraging people, encouraging ourselves to do the very opposite of what God is calling us to do. Because ultimately the problem With going with your gut. And the problem with following your heart is that your heart is not dependable. Is that your gut will lead you the wrong way. And we learn this from God's Word. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-six, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Over and over and over again, the Scripture says, listen, don't follow your heart. Don't trust your gut. Don't go with your instinct. Rather, when you make a decision... And when you give encouragement to others who are making decisions, first consider, what does God's Word say? The problem for us so often is, rather than consider what God's Word says, we simply consider, how do we feel? What is our gut instinct? And when we do that, friends, we're much more prone to make decisions based on our anxieties and our worries and our fears than we are to make decisions based on what God's will for us is. I see this happen in many areas. One that I see commonly is the whole area of missions. And I talked about going on this mission trip last week, and I've been privileged to go on a number of mission trips. I've been privileged to see a lot of people go on mission trips. But inevitably, when someone's considering going on a mission trip, there's always someone in the church who will say something to them along the lines of, I don't know if you should do that. In fact, I'm kind of worried for you. And then, you know, they'll they'll give you some very helpful information like, well, you know, planes crash a lot of times. And, you know, there's that plane they still haven't found yet. So I I don't know that you want to get on a plane and go all the way over there because that could be risky. Now, again, it's interesting. They usually don't give you that same input when you're flying to Disney World. I've never had anyone say, you might want to rethink going to Mickey Mouse Land because your plane might go down. Uh, They usually say what? That's great. I wish you could take you, me with you. But when you start talking about going to other places in the world, oftentimes, how do we counsel people? Well, I don't know about that. Well, well, that's kind of risky. Well, aren't you worried? Aren't you concerned? And it's easy to do this. In fact, just this last week in Poland, we were there in the church, and we were talking uh, to a couple of folks after the service that morning, and we were telling them we were leaving the next day uh, to fly back. And, and one well-meaning person said, Well, you know, haven't you seen the news about that plane that crashed? Aren't you worried? Well, no, I wasn't, but maybe I am now. Thank you for giving me that information. I just read a report about people getting in head-on collisions when they leave church, so chew on that for a little bit. Well, why would you tell somebody that? Because our natural inclination is what? It's to protect people, and that's a good thing. I mean, how many of you, when you were a child, and maybe still now as an adult, How many of you can tell me exactly what your mother did when you had to come to a sudden stop in the car? Boom! Exactly. Now, why did they do that? Were they just waiting for an opportunity to karate chop you because you were such a terrible child? Why did they do that? Because they love you, and they want to protect you. And so there's this protective instinct we have where we do care about people. We don't want people getting on a plane that never lands. We don't want people to go into harm's way. And so our instinct is to protect. Our gut is to protect. But what we need to be careful about, friends, is that we don't allow our gut and our instinct to take a greater priority in life than what God's Word says. And God's Word clearly says we are to go to the nations with the gospel. And Jesus clearly said that we would suffer for the sake of the gospel. And part of the problem, honestly, in the American church today is that we don't know what it means to suffer like so many in the world do. There are places in the world where the Christian experience is synonymous with suffering and pain and loss. That, that is not to make light or, or to make little suffering that's in your life from our life. We still suffer here. But but for some, that's the entirety of their Christian experience. And so for us who live at times this relative life of comfort and ease, when we hear about suffering, our gut reaction is, oh, wait, 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 I don't know if I want to go there. We need to be careful, at least we give input based on our gut and not God's Word. Second, we need to be careful that we're not using God's name to endorse our advice. You see, our gut instinct often is not just to go with our gut, but it's to try to spiritualize it. You know, we in the church, we know how to speak Christianese. <laughs> and we know how to make things sound the right way and sound more spiritual. And if we're not careful, what we do is we simply take what, what, what our gut's telling us and we try to shine it up and make it look a lot more spiritual by putting God's name on it. And in doing that, we need to be careful. least we do what these disciples at Tyre did. I believe in doing that, they were asking Paul to do the exact opposite of what God was calling him to do. Notice what we read in verse 4. It says there in verse 4 that as they're talking to Paul, it says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. What that means is that not only had the Holy Spirit told them this, they had the right information, but now they're going to Paul and they're saying, Paul, the Spirit is telling us that you shouldn't go. Paul God is telling you no. God is saying to you, don't go. God has told us, Paul, what his will for your life is. What's the problem with that? The problem is they didn't know what God's will for Paul's life was. And so they're basically taking their advice and they're putting God's name on it. Now there are some who read this text and their interpretation of it is, well, no, that they were right. That's exactly true. God didn't want Paul to go. And their take then is that Paul was this stubborn, disobedient person who didn't do what God called him to do. And I think that's a false understanding of the text. Because we've already seen clearly in the book of Acts, God certainly was calling Paul. Paul was being obedient to God. The problem was people had the right information, but they were making the wrong conclusions. And so here's what we need to understand about this. Hear this carefully. God does not deliver His will directly to others through us. hear that again. God does not deliver His will directly to others through us. Now, that that might seem concerning to hear your pastor say that. Because it can sound like I'm saying, uh, I'm not supposed to tell you what God wants you to do. (laughs) That's correct if you understand it in the right context. See, I am not the Holy Spirit in your life. And you're not the Holy Spirit in my life. But we have this wonderful doctrine in Reformation history that we as a church have held on to for the last 500 years called the priesthood of the believer. And what the priesthood of the believer means is that the Scripture teaches that, that you and I as Christians who have responded in repentance and faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have then access to God. We don't need a go-between. So you don't need a minister, a pastor, a priest, a pope, a bishop to tell you what God has said, and you don't need them then to tell God what you are saying. You don't need a go-between. The Christian faith is one where we have direct access to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the Scripture refers to the body of Christ, 1 Peter chapter 2, as a royal priesthood. And so that means you and I, according to the Scripture, if we are believers and followers of Christ, we're all saints, we're all priests. We have direct access. But the problem is this. There are times when people in the church, people in our lives, pastors, ministers, others, they feel like it's their calling to be the Holy Spirit in your life and tell you what God's will is. And there are times when, when you might look to them to find God's will more than you look to God to find God's will. Now, my role as a pastor and as a brother and sister in Christ to you it is to be a part of you finding God's will. It's my role to compliment or to confirm His will, to point you to His will in Scripture. But I don't have some secret knowledge of God's will for your life. I don't have some vault in my office that I open up that says, oh, here's what it is. Here's what they should do. I've got the same thing that you've got. I've got the holy word of God. And in the word of God, God's will is really clear in areas. And then in other areas, maybe it's not so clear, but it's always clear in leading us to understanding what His will is. So I'll give you an example, one that I've faced many times. Sandy and I, as I've told you before, uh, we were uh, campus ministers there at Western Kentucky University. And so as we offered counsel to young men and women going through their college years, inevitably, there were always lots of questions about relationships. And so I'd often have young men who would come to me and say, okay, Richard, I really need your help. Is it, do you think it's God's will that I marry so-and-so? Now, again, I don't have a secret computer I can go to that says, do do oh, yes, it is, you know. I, I didn't sit down one day when I was in college and say, okay, is it God's will for me to marry Sandy? And, oh, wait, there in Acts chapter 48, it tells me real clear, marry Sandy. But God's Word has a lot to say about who we should marry. It might not tell you the name of the person, but it tells you the type of person. And so in seeking to understand God's will, in leading people to understand God's will, it's important that we point them to God's Word. And so I'll give you the process that I would take these students through. They would say, is it God's will for me to marry so-and-so? i say, okay, question one. Are you a Christian and are they a Christian? Because God's Word's really clear on that. There, there's no mystery here. There, there's no, what does my gut say? It says it explicitly clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He goes on to write, What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And so really clearly there in the Scripture, that, that, that's not my gut, that's not my take on it, that's just what God's Word says. Believers are to marry believers. Believers aren't to marry unbelievers. And for me, I don't really have any role in the marriage between an unbeliever and an unbeliever. There's lots of people that could do that, but I'm a minister of the Gospel, and so I unite people in the Gospel. And so question one, are they a Christian or are you a question? Yes, well then you go to question two. Are you already obeying God and seeking to be pur- pure in your relationship? See, again, God's word doesn't say marry this person, but it says marry this type of person. And then it says in the context of a relationship, here's the guidelines. Here's what's going to bring honor and glory to God. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That, That that's not my gut. That's not my instinct I'm sharing with you today. That that's clearly what God's Word says. And so then if yes, that this is a Christian, I'm a Christian, yes, we're seeking to glorify God in our relationship, we're fleeing sex from morality, well then, a real obvious question is, are you willing to covenant together in marriage for the rest of your life with this person? Because that's the picture of marriage we have in Genesis chapter 2, where God brings Eve to Adam, and he commands them to be in this covenant relationship with one another. He says, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so does that tell you the name of the person? No. But it walks you through exactly the type of person, type of relationship, type of commitment. And yet, friends, you look at the church of Jesus Christ today, and you look at how messed up relationships are, how messed up marriages are, how we constantly fail to obey just these three teachings in the Scripture. Why does that happen so often? I fear it's because we become a people who rely a lot more on our gut than we do on God's Word. And you can look at the evidence before us and see our gut leads us the wrong way. And if we're going to be a people who suddenly want to take this stand for biblical marriage, then we better look in the mirror and be a people committed to the Scripture in our marriages today before we turn around and tell everybody else what biblical marriage needs to look like. We're called to obey God's Word in every area of our life, not simply go with our gut in every area of our life. But there's a fundamental reason so often we don't do this, and that's because we have become committed as churches to be more concerned about our happiness than our holiness. And that's the last thing I want to address We give poor advice and bad counsel, but so often, point three, we value happiness more than holiness. Paul here in verses 7 through 12, he, he has a similar encounter. He receives similar feedback. This time, as I've mentioned already, uh, this prophet Agabus comes and basically what's taking place here is Agabus is doing what many Old Testament prophets did. You read about this in Isaiah and Jeremiah where, where they would actually act out the prophecy to help you understand. And so, parents, you can understand this. It's one thing to tell your kids, uh, don't do this, do this. If you do this, here's the consequence. It's another thing to just let it play out. It's another thing for them to experience it. And then you have those moments of, okay, now let's talk about why I told you not to do that or I told you to do this. Well, here, this prophet is saying to Paul, let me show you what's going to happen. Now notice, Agabus has the right information and Agabus doesn't have the wrong conclusion. He never tells Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But those who are standing by do, including Luke who under the inspiration of the Spirit, would go go on to write uh, the book of Acts. So Luke and others see here, okay, this is going to happen to Paul, and then they make the same conclusion that those before them did. Paul's going to suffer. That's the right information. But we don't want Paul to suffer. Nobody chooses suffering. We, We don't choose door number two. But God had called Paul to suffer. And there's a big difference between Choosing suffering just for the sake of suffering and choosing to follow God's will, understanding that suffering may come. Some of you are familiar with Oswald Chambers. He, among other things, we have my, most for his highest a devotion that many people use written by him. He made this point in his devotion when he wrote this. To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Here's what Chambers is saying. We don't go out just looking to be martyrs and looking to suffer. But what we should do as Christians is go out looking for God's will, understanding that that means we may suffer at times and if we constantly are just trying to avoid suffering, that what we may then do is we may avoid the will of God and try to run away from it. God's will is so clear in his scripture about the Great Commission. God has commanded us to go to the nations with the gospel. And if we do that, and if we're serious about that, somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to suffer. There's going to be a pastor who gets on a plane and doesn't come home. Somebody's going to send their kids to a far-off land and they're never going to see them again. Except for in a video where somebody does terrible things to them in the name of a false God and a false religion. And if our response to that reality is, I've got to protect them. I've got to hold them tight then what we're doing is saying, I know better than God knows. And friends, if we are going to trust our lives and the lives of our kids and our family and our church to a sovereign God, then we need to accept that following God's will means that people are going to suffer. And it also means this. There are worse things than suffering for the glory of Christ. God uses our suffering for His purposes. And the suffering that's in your life and in my life today, do you realize that that may be God's megaphone to your life and my life? That might be the very means through which God is working in your life. It's not what you would choose. Nobody chooses door number two. But we need to accept it as part of God's sovereign will for our lives and walk in faith with Him and trust Him that He will use this suffering for His purposes because ultimately, that's what the Gospel teaches us. that This whole pattern of hearing about someone's suffering and encouraging them then not to go forward, it goes back a ways. But here in the Scriptures, we see it very clearly in the life of Jesus Himself. And you remember what happened when Jesus told the disciples He was going to have to suffer? What did they say? No! Don't do it, Jesus! See, what they wanted Jesus to do is they wanted Him to sit on a throne and reign But they didn't want Him to suffer. They wanted glory without the cross. But friends, the truth of the gospel is this. There is no glory apart from the cross. And the suffering that God allows in your life and in my life is a process through which He reminds us of something. This world is not our home. And this is not the final chapter. That chapter is being written and a new heaven, and a new earth. And suffering and pain in our life are a reminder to us from God that this isn't home, that our eyes might turn from this and turn towards that. And that we might live in light of eternity and of glory. We so easily miss that when we just go through life depending on our gut and we go through life more concerned about our happiness than our holiness. There's a turning point that comes in the life of a believer when you realize that God has a greater desire that you be holy than you being happy. And that when you understand the gospel brings a greater joy to you than your sin can ever bring. Norman Geisler said it this way, the stark truth is that God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. There is no verse in the Bible that says, be happy as I am happy. There are verses that declare, be holy as I am holy. And then he writes this, yes, God is more interested in our character than our comfort. And He has been known to sacrifice the latter in order to achieve the former. Matthew Henry said it this way, there are those that are happy Truly happy, only because they are holy, truly holy. And so if your desire, if your pursuit in life right now is just happiness and worldliness, then let me tell you what the Scripture clearly says. That may bring you joy for a season, but it will leave you wanting. And you will always be in search of that which will make you more happy than the last thing. But there is a joy that the Gospel offers that is never-ending. And points us home towards heaven. And if you don't know of that joy. If you don't know of that gospel. Then the call for you and I today is. Turn from the earthly happiness that is fleeting. And turn to the joy that is found in Christ. Turn from the, the gut feelings. And turn to God's word. And if you don't understand what that means. If you need more uh, explanation and dialogue about that, I, I would love to sit down with you this week. Pastor Matt, Pastor Nick, we would love to spend time with you this week helping you understand the gospel more. But if you understand it today, and if you're basically sitting here trying to decide according to verse 21, are you going to live for His will or not? Uh, then my prayer is that you would. That you would repent and turn to Him. And so I want to invite you, if you would, to stand together together as we offer an invitation and time for response. And this is an opportunity for you to simply ask yourself, are you willing to let the will of the Lord be done? Whatever that is in your life. Whatever that means for you. It's time for you to ask, are you focused on the things of this world? Or has God taken your suffering and your pain and affliction to focus you on the gospel and on a future kingdom? It's time for you to simply ask me to ask, are we willing to live according to the will of God or not? And if we're not, friends, let's just be honest. Let's stop trying to make it sound spiritual. And let's just say it. I'm not going to do what God says. And and be honest about it, because that's the reality. But, But if you're willing to submit to the Lord and His will, we certainly invite you now to do that in Christ's name. If you would, pray with me. Father God, I do ask that you might do a work through the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives today. Lord, so often the thing that is very clear for us is your call from the Word, and yet the thing that we are unclear on is how we need to respond. And yet that's clear too. We're called to repent and have faith. And so Lord, for any of this morning who clearly understands their sin in their life, whether it be in their decision-making processes and what they've been trusting in or, or the counsel they're giving others, Lord, I pray that they would just turn from it and repent of it. And Lord, I pray we would be a people who would desire for your will to be done. And Lord, that we would be more focused on that than we are our bank accounts, than we are our, our GPAs, than we are whatever... Patterns or whatever measures of success we're seeking in our life, our careers, our families. Lord, I pray our chief concern would be to bring you glory in whatever that means for us. So Lord, lead us now to respond as you would have us respond. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.